Welcome to the Project Zion podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts Community of Christ offers for today's world. Welcome to New Brew, the Project Zion series that takes us through the New Testament by explaining, exploring, and experiencing the text. Our guides through the New Testament are Tony and Charmaine Shavala-Smith, and I'm your host, Karen Peter. So before we begin our episode, I will again remind our listeners that you can view all of the New Brew episodes and the Hebrew and Shebrew episodes from last year and see Tony and Charmaine's slides and graphics on the Latter-day Seeker Ministries YouTube channel. So look for us there. Now, in today's episode, we're looking at the book of Acts, and we talked a little bit about covering Acts when we did Luke, but we decided against it. So why don't we start there and dive into the book of Acts? Great. So I think we decided this book deserved its own own limelight for a while because, well, for one thing, it's such a great read. This is a fast-moving, really uh, artful narrative. And so it, it deserves to be read on its own and not just kind of lumped onto the Gospel of Luke, even though it is volume two and the two should be read together. And it's really the only book in the New Testament that gives us any kind of a consistent look at the developing nature of the church. You know, the Gospels are these, you know, biographies of Jesus. And this is really the only book that gives us a little bit of a sense of a biography of the church and how how it developed and some of its uh, some of its experiments. Many experiments. You know, there's lots of different ways it tried to be something new, and um, some of them have carried through and some haven't. And I think that's kind of fascinating to see. We in our uh, in the old RLDS tradition. We, we had an image that, uh, you know, Jesus' main job was to establish the church. Well, the church is a long time in forming <laughs> after Jesus is around. Um, I mean, it's not seen as its own religion for at least, you know, another 40 to 50 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And so to, to you know, remember that it's, it's a subset of Judaism for that long is really important. And mm-hmm. so... So this emerging characteristics of what will become a freestanding church, um, it's, it's an interest, it's a good way to look at it. So if you take Luke and Acts together, and in your spare time, if you count <laughs> Greek lines, which I know you like to do, Karen, in your spare time. Yes, my spare time when I'm not reading the New Testament again for these <laughs> if, you, if you counted Greek lines, you would discover that Luke and Acts together are about one-fourth of the total volume of the New Testament. So this is a substantial work by one person, and this one person has made a significant theological contribution to the varied voices of the New Testament. And it's, it's really quite important to learn how to read both works together, Luke and Acts, but also to read them independently. So you get the, the differences, the differences in uh, in tone and theme and, and, and in what, what his focus is. But, you know, basically what you've got here is this one long kind of master narrative. It starts with the conception and birth of Jesus. Uh, and that narrative of his life 
Runs through Luke. Runs through Luke. It ends in Jerusalem with the risen Jesus telling the disciples to, to wait here. And then volume two starts in Jerusalem. And by the time you get to chapter 28 of volume two, you've moved all the way from this backwater province of the Roman Empire to the capital city of the empire. You're, you're in Rome. So there's a kind of a, a, a massive sweep. And also, I mean, you are legitimately left a bit in awe that this tiny little religious movement in the space of a few generations goes from being 120 people. That's what Luke, that's how, that's Luke's number for how many disciples there were in Acts chapter one. It goes from 120 people to being a religion that is now spreading around the Roman empire and drawing the notice of officials and all kinds of people, not just, not just people of Palestinian Jewish background. So it's quite a, it's quite a, quite a lovely sweep. And so, but we're going to focus as much as we can on Acts today uh, to get a sense for this narrative. <clears throat> so one of the things that we'll have less transparency with in Acts than we did in Luke is that we don't have as good an access or sense of what are the sources that this author is using as he puts together these this however named Acts of the Apostles or Acts of the Holy Spirit, however you want to take a look at that book. Um, we do know that there are some, he has a source, it was probably, it was likely written already of um, what we call the, the we passages and where uh, the, the perspective of the author is that they are traveling with Paul like to um, on the shipwreck and on the island. Um, but the author uh, was not with Paul. So this is a, a, um, a second generation's gathering of some of the stories. Um, there have been times when people have assumed that the author of Acts was obviously with Paul, um, but there's no sign that this author actually knew Paul uh, knew his theology because those places where he has Paul speaking often are things Paul would never have said. <laughs> Luke's theology, not Paul's. <laughs> um, and uh, anyhow, so, and, and the author doesn't acknowledge anywhere that Paul wrote letters, um, mm -hmm. which is, is kind of a big factor, um, a really important element of who Paul was and how he he interacted with the churches that he helped establish. So there's there's all these little pieces. So it's a little harder to tell where this, the sources are that the author of Acts is using, but we can tell that they're different sources. So uh, that's yeah. still part of the, you know, how did this come together? Um, you know, some of it is um, probably written <coughs> sources. Uh, some it is oral sources. And some is the author's glue that holds <laughs> it all together and right. gives it, a, a consistency in a narrative yeah. flow. So, yeah, we have to presume the author, because the author tells us at the start of Luke's of the gospel that he uses sources. So we have to presume he's using sources here. It's just, we don't have any controls, right? With the gospel, we can lay Mark and Matthew side by side with Luke. We don't have those kinds of controls here, but, but yeah, very likely this, this, this author, by the way, as we mentioned, and we talked about him in the gospel is, this is one of the, the classiest of the New Testament writers in terms of Greek style, in terms of his mastery of multiple styles. Um, 
in the in the book of Acts, the Greek style in the, in the first part of the book, when the, the focus of action is in Palestine, the Greek style almost sounds like you were reading it from the Greek the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. He's mimicked that style, but then when you start getting out into the the Hellenistic world, ch- style changes, and you you are you are reading elegant elegant Greek that would have been the spoken and mostly written Greek of the, of the Greco-Roman world uh, in the late first century. So uh, he's, he's really, this, this is a very, very, very clever and skillful author. Uh, we can surmise that this author is highly educated and so puts all of his literary skills to work in creating this very compelling narrative. So where we'll go now is just to take a look at, again, the, the New Testament timeline to kind of see where does this book fit in in this bigger narrative of the new testament and so you know here again just refresh um we're we're looking down underneath the line mark somewhere 65 to 70 luke and matthew somewhere between 80 and 90 and then we see acts down here and that's roughly between 90 and 100 we know it was written after um the gospel of Luke. And since we put that 80 to 90, um, then 90 to 100 is is the best Mm -hmm. that most, and and the language fits with the language particularities and peculiarities fit within that time frame. Um, Again, we just remind people that Paul's letters are already starting at around 50 Mm -hmm. and um, go until 50 to 60, early 60s, yeah. 62, 64. Yeah. So those are all in the, the ones that we know for sure he wrote. Uh, others that have been attributed are, are much later in this time period, uh, 70 and beyond. But um, just to remember that the gospels and the act and acts were not the first things written, <laughs> um, but that Paul's letters were even before this and would have been circulating in some places though as we said the the author of acts doesn't note uh, that part about paul uh, so just that's kind of gives us a bigger picture and while she remains the timeline up there yeah. it's quite important to remember that if acts is written in sometime in the 90s we are now perhaps as much as a decade after the time when there tended to be something more like formal formal separations of this new thing, Christianity from Judaism. Now that's- Which happened around 85 to 90. Now, quite interestingly though, one of the themes in the book of Acts is continuity with Judaism. And the the whole narrative, Luke and Acts together, uh, is very carefully written to to express deep continuity with, with Judaism. And very likely there's, there's a very, there's a practical reason for that. That is that in the Roman Empire, Judaism had a kind of sort of a, a, a status as a legal religion, a religio licita, a, a licit religion. Didn't mean that there weren't pogroms against Jews in places in the Roman Empire, but it meant that, all right, if you're, if you're a Jew, you can practice what the Romans thought is this stupid monotheistic religion. You can practice it because it's way older than anything we've got and we'll leave you alone. And you don't have to do the emperor, you know, you don't have to offer a pinch of, of incense to the emperor. We know that ticks you guys off. So, <laughs> so 
there may be a practical reason why Luke is trying to show continuity with Judaism. That is, by the time Luke writes Acts, the church is now coming under imperial scrutiny more and more. Because, so, because yeah. it's, a, it's now not an old religion. It's this brand new kind of system. And it's no longer under protected status if it's a brand new religion. Right. And the Romans were not all that keen on newfangled new religions because <laughs> they were unpredictable. And uh, you, you didn't know what the people who were in the fervor of this newness would do. I don't know if it's an irony or not, Karen, but just think of it this way. In the ancient world, people valued even more ancient things. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> unlike, unlike the world we live in, where ancient things like us <laughs> have, a, have a shelf life. <laughs> we do have a shelf life. That is true. Although um, there is this tradition of um, oppressive power valuing ancient things because they... Um, for whatever reason, seem to have inherent power in them. I mean, you can, you can look at Indiana Jones if you want to, or you can actually look at history and say um, that happened in World War II with the Nazi party. They valued these kinds of ancient things because they felt they had power. Right, yeah. That's part of human nature, I think. Yeah. So I, I, don't, think, I don't think it would be helpful to see the authors trying to somehow trick the Romans with this. I think Luke believes... And he's very skillful at showing how, mm-hmm. how, how, how much continuity there is between Jesus and the Hebrew prophets and Jesus and the early church and the early church and Jesus, which means the early church is in continuity with Judaism. And it's in, it's, it's in Acts where Paul later on is depicted as once uh, shaving his head and doing some stuff for a Jewish vow. And... Uh, if you compare Acts 15, which is this description of a, we'll call it the Jerusalem World Conference, <laughs> this, this description of a conference, if you, did, if, you, if you compare it with Paul's own account or memory of it, which is, you know, decades earlier and closer to the event, there's some significant differences about what was decided there. But in the, in the book of Acts, the decision, the decision makes the allowance of Gentile Christians to come into the church it, it, it makes it feel like there's a few more Jewish stipulations put on them than, than, than Paul or, or his mission to the Gentiles did generations earlier. So again, continuity is a big thing for Luke, trying to show that we are connected. And uh, another thing about continuity in the book of Acts is that the, the apostles are always laying on hands, right? <laughs> and that's the symbol of continuity, of passing something on. Right. And by the way, for Luke, an apostle is someone who traveled with Jesus during his historic ministry. Thus, he's very reticent to call Paul an apostle. Paul did not fit that category. I think there may be one little spot where it slips out, but generally when you get to the second half of the book, which is about Paul's ministry more, uh, you know, Paul, Paul, Paul Paul has to see what the apostles say about stuff. Yeah. So, so it's very interesting. It's it's again, part of continuity, part of this continuity theme. So, so I did want to ask a question about that before um, we move on, because it just came to my mind. And that is that in the gospels, uh, the different writers had different perspectives on those um, apostles, those disciples that were with Jesus. I mean, Mark wasn't a big fan of some of them. So uh, where, where does Luke come down with that? So what, 
what bias are we seeing here in, in Acts? What did the author of Luke's have to say about them? I think to some extent, uh, Luke is a bit of a hero maker. Um, but there, there's some limitations here. The heroes are made by, this, by their openness to the spirit acting with them and around them, uh, within them. Uh, and so Peter, Peter doesn't look like the bumbling fool that Mark would have had um, or the, you know, the, the guy with anger issues. Um, Peter's pretty much passed the test and is mostly seen as someone who now understands and is wielding this power of Christ in ways that um, echo so closely back to Jesus' words, to Jesus' actions, um, and he's proclaiming Jesus and the name of Jesus as having power. Um, so it's, it's not, he's not a hero in and of himself. It's how he's connected to Jesus and the, and where the spirit is uh, and attunedness to the spirit, I would say. And I think that's a really good observation. And you, a, qu a quick way to see it is in the passion story in Luke, you know, Peter says, I, I don't know the guy. I never met him in my life. Right. And then not many chapters later, you get into Acts 2 and Peter's addressing, you know, hundreds of people in Pentecost and standing up to the officials. So the, narr the narrative in, in its own way tries to show how the, the spirit can, uh, if I use term means hero language, the spirit can turn people into heroes uh, of a different kind. Not, not like the Hellenistic uh, uh, quasi divine hero figures, but, but, here, but heroes in the sense of being able to, their, their humanity has now been elevated and they find courage and a voice and, and compassion. So. And, and Peter is still seen and recognized by officials as being this illiterate fisherman from Galilee. And so there's, there's not a, um, <laughs> a rewriting of his story. He's still in the view of the world seen as really this fisherman thinks he can challenge mm -hmm. us, mm -hmm. uh, you know, where does he get off thinking that's, you know, that's acceptable. And so, you know, he's imprisoned and, and the spirit helps him out, you know? And uh, so it's, it's an overturning again, which is a theme in Luke too, mm -hmm. of overturning, overturning other authority and um, being established in a new kind of authority right. because of Christ. And, it, and if you want to, if you want to connect that, what Charmaine's talking about to the plot line, you have to go all the way back to Mary's song, mm -hmm. the Magnificat, where God, God elevates the lowly mm -hmm. and puts down the mighty. Mm -hmm. And that, that's, that's God's uh, game plan in history. And so now the, the lowly, these illiterate fishermen have been elevated and they're now, they're now the vanguard of the, of the creation of a new world. So it's, it's an interesting and I think mm -hmm. very compelling way to, to think about it. Um, so yeah, uh, the, the, uh, the apostle, I mean, the book got the title acts of the apostles, but in a sense, the book focuses primarily on Peter in the first half with a few cameos, you know, of others, and then in the second half, it focuses on Paul, the sort of not maybe the apostolic figure, but is he is he a real apostle? You know, you'll have to read Acts and see what you think. But nevertheless, 
you, 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 could, you could have titled this book if you were a scribe back in the second century, The Acts of Peter and Paul. Because in, in a sense... No, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> that just showed all of our ages because I laughed at that. She showed, up in, she showed up in chapter one. Sure, why not? <laughs> the Acts know. of Peter, Paul, and Mary. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, it, it, there, there are two focal things. And it, by the way, this gets us to the genre, the literary genre of this book. You know, we're we're going to be inclined to call it history, but we have to be careful when we use the term history here. Because... The history we're describing in the first late first century is a, is a genre that's like and unlike what we call history. Um, one scholar, Bruce Metzger, a long time ago, referred to the genre of acts as an ancient genre called, <laughs> you're not going to like this or it's going to strike you as funny, but pathetic history. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a technical term. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a story that creates pathos. Right. Empathy, empathy, a, a, a sense of right, a sense of feeling for the characters, and there are lots of ancient Greek narratives that, that were written that way. Bart Ehrman refers to it as the Hellenistic genre of general history, but in the Hellenistic world, general history did not tell everything it knew. It focused on it focused on key scenes that gave you a feeling for the ethos of this community. So it's not, general history in the ancient world is not complete history. And also one thing we know about historiography in the ancient world, uh, and some of the great historians tell us that, they, that this is part of their, 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 their MO. Um, they used sources when they could, and they made up stuff when they didn't. And so the speeches, the book of Acts is full of really powerful speeches or sermons, and um, that's what I call the narrative glue right that right. holds the story together <laughs> they, they really they hold the story together and for the ancient reader those speeches in this book or poetry and other kinds of books you know if if in the middle of a narrative somebody breaks into a poem an ancient reader is like ah that's the key to the whole and here when different uh, different figures in the ancient church speak and and give a sermon right. for Luke that's the glue, that's, that's the key to the whole. But Luke, like an ancient historian would have, created those speeches. They represent Luke's theological understanding more than they do the, the figures that are represented. And the ones that you would find in Acts are Peter's speech at Pentecost, mm -hmm. Stephen's speech um, just before he gets stoned to death, and, and where he has all of these you'll hear the reminiscences of Jesus's words at his death. Um, and then Paul's, um, it'd be the third journey, his Athens speech. Uh, down second here. journey. Second journey, yeah. thank you. So in all of those places, you're gonna find some of those defining speeches um, that, and that, like I said earlier, um, where Paul says some things, uh, the Paul, <laughs> who wrote the letters would never have said, but the author needs Paul to say that at this place in the story. So it's kind of like contemporary poetic license. It is the author, the author. Yeah. And, and some of the ancient historians like Herodotus and Thucydides tell us when I had sources, I used them. When I didn't, I created what I thought would have fit the circumstance. And so all of these speeches are designed to fit the circumstance. And by the way, I can tell you in my third year, in my third year of Greek, I had a class reading the speeches in Acts 
and the Greek is really hard. <laughs> <laughs> you have to be in your third year of Greek before you can. can oh dear. It's yeah, it's refined and it's it's very uh, oh, it's it's very Hellenistic word word order and stuff. It 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 throws English speakers completely off trying to. So anyway, side note. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to say more about this before I? Yeah, we just this is something we just created to show the, the key scenes. And and by the way, it, it, this ancient narrative genre, one of its one of its traits was to focus on key scenes, right? Uh, dr dramatic dramatic episode style, it's sometimes called, where where a, a, a little vignette kind of gives you a clue as to the meaning of the whole. And uh, sometimes you see that in actually in modern cinema too. But but you know uh, this this gives you a picture a feel for the community. By the way, this is being written not for outsiders, but insiders. It, remember, it's written for Theophilus, who's a new convert. And this is helping him uh, have a sense for where did all this come from? You know, if Theophilus is some, some uh, high-ranking, uh, you know, so, socially high-ranking uh, Hellenistic dude in the late first century who's becoming Christian, he wants to know where all this came from. And, and what is it I really got myself into? Well, the dramatic scenes show you what you got yourself into. <laughs> and included here would be, um, you know, Saul's conversion. Again, this changing of direction of, uh, of Saul who wants to destroy the Christians to now having an experience with Christ. There's Cornelius, you know, he and his whole family are these Gentiles, not just Gentiles, but he's a centurion. He's part of the... Um, <laughs> the invading the, the yeah. present army occupying. occupying is the word I'm trying invading was much earlier, but yeah, the occupying army and his, his connection to God leads him to his whole household being um, touched by the Holy spirit and coming to know who Christ is um, Paul's first journey and all the struggles that are there, the Jerusalem conference, which, sometimes isn't a main scene that's picked up very much in our preaching and, and storytelling, but which in this book is a pivotal moment um, as to what the spirit is doing in the bigger world, the Roman world. So one other thing we can say about this whole narrative is that let, let's call this uh, theo history, right? It's theologically a theologically motivated telling of the story. <laughs> And one of the things that Luke is trying to show is that, hey, God's, God's been in this all along. That's a, a very simple theme through the whole book. And, you know, this, this, this movement of a group from within Judaism out into the whole world that's becoming this, this major inclusive force in the world, that's a God thing. That was, that was always part of the divine plan. And it's very interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm borrowing off of the New Testament scholar Luke Johnson here. The last Greek word of the narrative is akolutos, which means unhindered. Paul might be under house arrest at the final, in the final scene, but he's preaching and the word, the message about Jesus is unhindered. It's going forward. The empire can't stop it. Um, it has a power of its own, i.e. the spirit power. And there's, there's probably something of value in that for us. That is, we... we in our current realities, live live under the the shadow of a variety of empires: some economic, some cultural, some political. And yet, 
the good news about Jesus, I mean, the real good news about Jesus can't, can't, be, can't be stopped or hindered in spite of those political and social and economic forces that really do want to hinder the creation of an inclusive and loving community. So, uh, so Acts has some things to teach us if we look at the whole. Yeah. And just for those who are curious about the Spirit's role, uh, you'll find that many of these uh, prominent scenes that define the whole book um, are spirit, they're, they're grounded in what the Spirit is doing and the nature of the Spirit. So we so talked this, about that a little bit before we started. So maybe this is a good time to talk about the title of it. We talked about the difference between this being the Acts of the Apostles or what you call it, the Acts of Peter and Paul or the works of the Spirit. And I've heard both. So what is it? <laughs> well, uh, scribes, put, scribes created a name for this document, perhaps sometime late in the second century. Uh, praxis, which Greek means deeds, right? And there's a lot of apostolic and quasi-apostolic deeds in it, but modern readers have said the real, the real, uh, the real force behind the deeds is the spirit, right? The, the divine, the divine spirit, the mighty, the, the spirit that's like a mighty rushing wind in Pentecost has a has a force of its own, and uh, it's it's creating this whole new reality uh, in and through people's responses. And this is really important because this is another carryover from Luke. In Luke, um, Jesus filled with the spirit. You know, this happens as he leaves the wilderness. This happens in his baptism. This happens as he goes out into his ministry. And, and there's these little stops along the way where, where Jesus is recharged. Um, you know, and because in Luke, he's, Jesus is the praying prophet you know he's the one who prays and and so there's this very intentional connection to the spirit and you'll see this through acts uh it's very um very intentional about naming uh here's what the spirit did and you know whether it's what somebody saw um stephen seeing the the heavens uh, there's there it's more implied that it's the spirit that gave him this sight mm -hmm. but in uh, Paul's Damascus Road um, surprise <laughs> for him, uh, you know, there's this very much the sense that it's the spirit that is both present and blinding, um, mm -hmm. and and then it's it's Jesus present uh, that he sees in some way. So, but the spirit is you know the Pentecost. Um, it's what gives. Stephen words, it's what gives Peter words. Mm -hmm. And it keeps going back to that. It's, it's what frees Peter from prison. Um, it's, I don't know if it's named when, when Paul snakes, uh, shakes off the snake that bit him, but it's very much the sense that the spirit is at work um, to convince mm -hmm. others of this Jesus message. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I mean, I think calling it the acts of the Holy Spirit really ca catches uh, who the who the primary actor is in in the, in the narrative. Uh, everybody else, like Paul and Peter, everybody, they're riding the wave. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in in Luke, it's Jesus and what he's doing that is the focus, and here is this other um, dimension of God that is at work. And Charmaine has mentioned this uh, 
a, a few times, it's just important to know that there's Luke does this paralleling thing between the what Jesus does, the apostles do, right? And what happens to Jesus happens to the apostles. And so he's trying to show this, again, this is a continuity theme. The early church is the continuation of Jesus' ministry. This, this particular view is unique to Luke in the New Testament. You don't find it really elsewhere, but, but uh, you can legitimately say of the church in the book of Acts, of the way the church is depicted, you can legitimately say that Jesus' mission is its mission, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's, it's, doing the, it's doing the same stuff that Jesus did, only now uh, in a way that Jesus couldn't do it, uh, not bounded by geography. So uh, that's just a, it's a cool theme, I think, in, mm -hmm. in this book. So, um, and then I, one other theme that's worth mentioning is I, we've hinted at it before: inclusion, right? The in this book, one of the primary works of the Holy Spirit is creating an inclusive community, um, and so you you get some you get hints of a of a struggle in the early church to open the church ethnically, right? It starts off as, you know, Palestinian, probably Aramaic-speaking Palestinian Jews who, be, who are following this Jesus figure. And then it expands a little bit. You have uh, Hel Hellenized, Greek-speaking Jews who have started following Jesus. And then you follow as the book goes increasingly then you've got I, then you've you've got the ethiopian eunuch will meet later and you've got in, in, increasingly more people. more gentiles it's more gentiles than jews it's people who have known come to know about this god through their jewish contacts or they hang out at the, the at the local synagogues and they can't convert but they're kind of hanging around and they, they they've come to know this god and then and then it's gentiles who don't know anything all these Gentiles, we don't want them. They're not like us. <laughs> They're not like us. Wait, they don't follow. Was that said the in the early church? <laughs> well, They're not following the rules, you know. I, I I can date us even a little further, Karen, by saying this book is full of all kinds of guess who's coming to dinner moments. Yes. <laughs> there you go. Right. And it starts right really very mm. soon. You know, we sometimes. Um, I want to say fantasize, but about the early church having being so wonderful and having all things in common. And well, right at the beginning, we find out uh, there's a problem. You know, yeah, they have things in common and they're taking care of the widows. Uh, but you know what? <laughs> they're not taking care of the widows equally. The Palestinian widows are getting more of the food and support. That can't be true, Charmaine. That can't widow. be true because Acts 2, 41 to 47 is the epitome of the perfect church to which we all are called to attain. Well, you can At least those are the sermons I hear. What, Tony? <laughs> you can belong to that church, Karen. I'm not. I, I believe. No, but this is a good time to talk about that. Let's yeah. talk about Acts 2. In the Restoration traditions, it gets held up as the model. This is what we're supposed to be here. But I think that then that's one of those places where we need to read this accurately, historically, for you know, as much as Acts might be historical, is there's just a very short time that they try this experiment. And right from the beginning, this is very near the beginning, that they have this problem. It's like, oh, you know, we're, 
we're prev- you prev- almost just said oh crap <laughs> i know you almost said that self-restraint <laughs> watching your face <laughs> i've never seen you do that before okay so they're realizing oh crap we've been biased we are taking better care of the palestinian widows who live here and who you know have deep roots in judaism than we are the the um uh, the Jewish widows from elsewhere who speak Greek, who, who are, are Greek speakers, and <laughs> yes, they 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 moved to correct that, and then they also moved for the apostles to kind of wash their hands of dealing with all of these issues, and and the you know the seven the seven men are um, become servants of the poor. They're all um, they're all. Uh, Hellenistic Jews. They all have Greek names. Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing this is like an intentional, oh my goodness, we had a blind spot. Oh, um, we got to watch that. And so it's like right from the beginning, they're recognizing some of the the problems and challenges of community together. And, you know, I think there's some other pieces is, you know, Jesus brought his disciples from Galilee a whole gang of them, men and women, uh, if we're, we're to, to believe Luke 8, which describes this wandering group of people <laughs> who are not married to each other and, um, and traveling around together. Oh exactly. my. And they came to Jerusalem for Passover and they've stayed, you know, and it's like the people who they're, they're, relatives who house them thinking they would be gone after Passover. Sorry. And now it's like, what, 40 days more? Uh, sorry. Oh, I, my I, didn't bring my, I didn't bring my checkbook from Galilee. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> and, and so we begin to see some of the necessity of having all things in common, uh, sharing your home, sharing your food, sharing your resources, because fishermen aren't making any money if they're not fishing. And there's not really a good place to fish in Jerusalem. <laughs> so so this is out of necessity as, as well as choice of having all things in common um, in this, in this mm-hmm. group of Jesus' first followers. So I think that's important as we realize that this doesn't last very long. And Paul doesn't try to reinstitute this in the other communities where he plants the church. You don't, you don't see that ideal being um, picked up in other places. I think it is an ideal. I think, you know, it gives us some, some ways of recognizing there's, we have a lot of things to work through uh, if we're going to, to live and share in those ways. Um, but it's not the only um, example of what it means to be community in the book of Acts. Also, I, I, I know in the early restoration movement, this kind of image was prized, but we also have to contextualize them. They were proof texters, right? They were, they were looking for the, and, and they had this, this they, they worked with this ideology that you have to get back to the earliest for it to be right. Mm-hmm. And so but you, you mix those two things together, that and proof texting, and now you're going to go back to Acts 2. And we notice in our church's own history how poorly that worked at different times, right? <laughs> yes, uh, the, the, one, the one place it actually has worked for centuries is in Catholic and Orthodox monastic communities 
uh, that was that was going to be a hard sell for the early restoration movement. <laughs> but, for a lot of reasons. <laughs> yeah, but also, you know, so so they our ancestors in the in the church did not have the the contextual apparatus to understand this. They they were trying to get back to the original. I understand why they wanted to do that. Um, but it wasn't the only way right. that the church was right. as it was growing and developing. And if we if we want to, we can contextualize Acts even further. Um, by the time the Acts is written, uh, the Qumran community has is gone. It's it, the Romans destroyed it in the it's a, in, a Jewish, a, a Jewish kind, kind of, of quasi monastic Jewish community that lived out by the Dead Sea. They they started living out there maybe somewhere around 140 BCE in the Maccabean period. They were there until the Romans destroyed the community uh, 70, 71 in the, in the Jewish war. And that community practiced a kind of all things in common, a sort of somewhat monastic existence out by the Dead Sea. And that, that was certainly memorable that there were people sharing things in common. And, you know, it, it may be that that's in the background of Luke, Luke's description here, like, ah, you know, we, we, we did that too. We, we did that and we did it in town. We didn't have to go out to the woods to do it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but so there's there's various contextual factors, and I think you know if you if if you're going to literalistically focus on Acts two, my next question would be, okay, you want to do that? Then why don't you jump over to the beginning of chapter five and focus on the Ananias and Sapphira story literalistically? Where Ananias and Sapphira they sell some property, they withhold knowledge of the proceeds from the apostles. They only and, they only give part of it. They don't, they're not honest about how much they actually got for it. And they are both struck dead. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, it's no just, mission center president wants to hear this at this moment. <laughs> Nobody wants to know this. It's like tithe or die. You know, it's like, so, so, uh, it, it, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to be literalistic about all things in common, then you better figure out what you're going to do with that text too. In, instead, I think we can say, let's understand that Luke is trying to show that early, earliest Christianity was trying to, to figure out uh, the, the best possible way to live in in koinonia, in, in fellowship, in, in commonality. And there were different models. And, you know, Paul develops a different model as he goes out into Hellenistic cities. That's not quite like this at all. So anyway. So, so by taking this and idealizing this short passage, what is it, six um, verses, it's another um, incidence of us taking something out of context and trying to make it something that we want it to be, as opposed to keeping it in context and looking at it in the greater narrative of the story. So just a reminder for all of us, we learned all about this when we went through Hebrew and Shebrew. So let's not bring it back for Nubru. We don't want to take things out of context. And I think a positive way to use it is as glasses, as lenses, and to say, you know, if, if we were to think about what it would take for us to have that kind of equality and um, patience and long suffering with each other, um, then that gives us some places to start. If we think we've already arrived, all we have to think about is what if I had to live with these people every day and I had to share my resources and my bad habits, uh, you, you know, and I would have to be accountable for some of those bad habits and how they affect other people. And so I think as lenses to say, how can we see some of our blind spots mm -hmm. about the worth of all persons? 
it's, it's helpful that way. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, I want to share equally, except for that person. Mm -hmm. Uh, That person's already had so many blessings in their life. They don't need this, you know? And, and so there's a lot of things that it might help us help us look at in our own um, personal development and, and, and what does it mean? How can we be more like community or how can we have different dimensions of community in our congregations or in our home? Mm -hmm. But uh, to, to feel like this is the only way that we can truly be faithful, I think is, is dangerous. You can, you can put a kind of a spiritual formation lens on the text mm-hmm. and say, yeah, in this, in this scene, uh, in this, in this experiment that was going on in the early church, it looks like they're, they're sharing, they're, 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 they're sharing everything together. And, you know, where, what's, what do I find in myself that's most resistant to that? Or how, how do, mm-hmm. when it comes to sharing what I have with others, where are my boundaries and limits and why am I afraid to share more than I do? I mean, there's all kinds of places you could go with it mm-hmm. without turning it into some kind of eternal blueprint for how to be a church. So, okay. Good question. So uh, see if we have anything else Jeremy, we wanted to cover in terms of, uh, I think I know something I want to cover. I think at this point we're in the explore part, Karen. Oh, we're sort of, sort of running, we've been running back and forth. Yeah, we have been. Explore. But um, a difficult question to ask of this text is what kind of history does it give us? And so uh, one, one, has to, one has to recognize that the author is, decades removed from the events and also that the author has a theological thing he's trying to convey 60 to 70 years i think that's important to put numbers on it probably second or third generation christian and so he he does idealize his portrait of the early church and we have to be careful uh, as we read to recognize that he's he's giving us kind of the the very best spin on the early church. But between the lines of the book of Acts, I think we can read that the ethnic conflict between Jews and Gen- people of Jewish background and Gentile and Gentile background was really a struggle. It was a long struggle. And there were different approaches to how to how to make to make a lot of space for others. So um, another thing too is the the author's portrayal of Paul. <laughs> Here's this is yes, a- let's talk about the author's portrayal of Paul because yeah. we'll be talking about Paul soon enough. <laughs> we will. This is I, I think you know, people often find Paul's letters hard to read, and they are. They're not narratives, right? And so the tendency is to go to Acts and say, uh, Acts gives us the story of Paul, and then somehow we try to fit try to fit the letters into into, into Acts. And on the one hand, while Luke, while Luke's tracing of Paul's movements seems to be fairly accurate, his representation of Paul and Paul's thinking and ideas is Luke. It's not Paul. And he, he portrays Paul as a kind of man for all seasons. Paul can do almost anything, right, in this book. You know, he can, he can speak elegant Greek on, on Mars Hill in Athens. He can speak Aramaic to an angry crowd in Jerusalem. He can, he can tell sailors how to manage their ships so that not everybody is killed in the storm. <laughs> Luke never met a sailor, obviously. And that um, it, Paul, Paul is, uh, in a sense, Paul is Luke's real hero, even though Luke is not sure he can call him an apostle. 
which Paul would have said, are you kidding me? I'm an apostle. What do you mean? We'll, we'll get to, we'll get to Paul talking about that soon enough. Yes, and, absolutely. Read Galatians. But so in other words, the, no, was that Romans or was it Galatians where he was all ticked off over that? Galatians. Galatians. You're right. Was yeah. it Galatians? All right. Yeah. But, um, and then the, 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 the so-called conversion of Saul in the book of Acts, it's a, it's a magnificent story, but Remember, when Paul speaks of his experience, he never connects it to Damascus. He does not connect it to an experience of losing his sight for a while. When Paul, he, when, when Paul reluctantly speaks about what that was, he'll use images of seeing. I, so that, that's a connection. I saw Jesus, our Lord, he says in 1 Corinthians. He, he appeared, last of all, he appeared to me like he did to the other apostles. Um, and he called me, he called me to go preach to the Gentiles. That's pretty much the extent of what Paul will say about the experience. Luke, Luke's uh, depiction of it makes a great icon, right? Um, but one- It has all that glue Charmaine was talking about. <laughs> but I think, I think if you want to, if you, you have to let Paul speak for himself on his own experience. And remember that Luke in a very stylistic way is telling Christians two generations after Paul, Hey, we had this great hero figure and here's what he was like. And here's what happened to him. And isn't it great that the spirit has been doing this kind of stuff in our midst and so on. So in other words, there's, there's a, you just, you just have to, you, you take, you take acts as acts, but then you don't make Paul somehow conform to what's an acts. Right. It's, right. it's a portrayal. So I, I can feel you kind of moving around <laughs> saying this. So I'm just going to say it. Luke has an agenda. Sure. He's writing for Theophilus. He has an agenda, just like all of us do when we write anything. We sit down to write a sermon or to write a testimony. We have an agenda because we have a point we're trying to make to the people to whom we're speaking. And that's really what is happening here with the book of Acts. There's Absolutely. nothing wrong with that. No, no. But I think it's important to acknowledge that yeah. um, because then, then you can, then this isn't just little historical facts. Mm. This has a purpose. And that makes us also take our time with the text, right? I, I want to figure out what's Luke's, what's Luke's end game here. What's Luke, what's he trying to get at? Because that's the, that's the God connecting piece for us. Let's, 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 here's what Luke is doing, but what's Luke pointing to or pointing at? That's where we want to go. Right. And so that's, that then leads us into kind of uh, both theological and spiritual formational readings of the text that are so important to us. Uh, for we we forget that when we're reading scripture because we want to get so caught up in how we understand historical fact, and so we we look at all of what you said, what's happening, and we forget to look at what the point is, what it's pointing yeah. to. We do that in the Gospels too with Jesus. Exactly, it's that whole question of what is truth. Yeah, is yeah. is truth what describes a reality, or is it about facts? Yeah. And, and so this is a place, too, where you have to take the author seriously when the author uses certain kinds of images, right? So when Luke describes the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, it's just, it was like a mighty, mighty rushing wind, right? Um, like Greek, hosper, as if it were, right? As if it were a mighty rushing wind. And so uh, the simile, right? It's, it's a comparison 
it's not a photograph. <laughs> uh, so we can't say the Holy Spirit is a rushing wind. No, I mean, the, but we can't say it isn't. We can say in this instance, it's described as. Right. And then that may connect with some of our experiences of the ways in which the spirit whooshes mm -hmm. um, through our lives or in a particular setting or situation. Is there a Greek word for whooshes? <laughs> I would believe it. I don't know it. Sorry. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's a spiritual reality requires the use of analogy, metaphor, simile. We're talking about things that are not data, right? They're not, they're not uh, material factoids. We're talking about things that are beyond our normal realm of functioning that are real, but, but right. that we have to use poetic images to get at. They are sensed, but not tangible, if that right. makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's important to look at, especially as we go into Acts and we hit Pentecost right, right there um, in chapter two. And there's a lot of paranormal activity in Pentecost, if you want to look at it that way, or we can look at it as poetic um, language and simile and descriptors and such. And I think we have to do that throughout Acts. Because because we don't want to limit what the spirit is and how it works. Um, we do want to discern what is the spirit and what isn't the spirit, but we don't want to so put the spirit in a box that, uh, that it can't surprise us. And that's something the spirit loves to do. <laughs> and at least that's what Acts says. <laughs> so any more questions, Karen, or should I... Go on into. No, let's let's go on to experiencing the the text. So just always to to begin as we're the reason that we have the experience part is with scripture is that we just we want to provide this other way of approaching scripture than people may have approached scripture in the past, and we want to approach it as though the author is just trying to tell us about their experience of God, Spirit, Christ, um, in their time in their situation. And then we then try to see if aspects of their encounter with God can speak to us. And maybe it can, and maybe it can't, and either way is fine. But it's, it's a way to connect with the, the human part of it. Um, the process of looking at their experience, thinking about it as their experience, not as scripture as some words dictated by God for keeping people in line, but looking at these people's experience as they could best describe it, um, it humanizes them, first of all. It humanizes us because we're connecting with them on our human everyday kind of experience level. And, and it makes scripture an invitation rather than an inquisition. <laughs> and so that's kind of how we're going to be approaching the scripture. And just a little bit about the, I've got two scriptures, very short ones today, um, but they're both from Acts near the beginning. And so the first one is when Christians are kind of kicked out of Jerusalem because things are getting a little hot there. And um, we follow Philip who first goes to Samaria and then is headed is headed south and west um and along the way he meets he he is drawn to this person who is reading from a scroll of isaiah and uh he kind of goes alongside to see 
if he can be helpful, I think the spirit, it's very explicit that the spirit is guiding him along to, to see what, what can happen here. So in, in this chariot is a, a eunuch who is a servant of the queen of Ethiopia. And being a eunuch means that he has been sexually altered uh, so that he is not a threat uh, to, to women. Uh, so basically de-testosteronized, I guess, would be a way to kind of look at that. Um, and so here's this eunuch who would not be able to be Jewish, but is obviously connected somehow to Juda Judaism and the God of Judaism. So he's reading the scroll and Philip comes alongside and the eunuch says, um, about whom may I ask, does this prophet, uh, about whom may I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? And so he's, you know, this is a part of Isaiah and he's confused. And Philip then begins to speak. And starting with the scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And obviously, Philip had been talking about Jesus and about baptism. And the eunuch says, look, here's water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? Someone who could not enter into uh, fully into Judaism because of his, um, because he's a eunuch, uh, is saying, is there anything that keeps me from being baptized into this Jesus group thing. So he commanded the chariot to stop. And both of them, Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. I just, this is just so wonderful. It's because we get the <laughs> sense of the unpredictability of the spirit and what it's doing and how it will take this bad situation of the, the Christians being Christian, Jewish Christians getting kicked out of Jerusalem to suddenly find new ways to be at work. So then the next scripture, I'll just give a little background, is uh, the story of Peter who has um, had this visionary experience about the animals being let down in the sheet and just told to eat them. And it's like, oh no, God, I follow the rules. I, I don't eat anything unclean. And God says, take and eat what I, what I have created. Do not call on unclean, do not call unclean. And so, and it, and as soon as he's trying to process this, there's people from another city, from a centurion in that city who are saying, Come with us, and um, and he's still processing. Whoa, this experience! And so he goes to Cornelius's house, and Cornelius, who again has had some connection with the Jewish God, has said, "I've been told to send for you, and you are supposed to tell me about things." And you know, Peter's already taken this huge risk. He's going with centurion's um, servants to the centurion's house. He's a good Jew who doesn't 
thinks he's not, he just, he thinks he's going to be eating kosher and he's now staying in these Romans house. And don't you have a vegan option? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, and he doesn't know about his own safety. And, and then we see what is it that the spirit is about here. And we'll go on down to the next one. And so this is from Acts 10. Well, Peter was still speaking. So um, Cornelius says, Tells us, tell us what it is that it is that God wants us to hear. And so Peter starts talking about Jesus and the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. The circumcised believers, so those who came with, with Peter, um, Jewish Christians, uh, are astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit has been poured out even on the Gentiles um, because they're hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. So they can't deny what they're hearing. And then Peter said, can anyone hold withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So the spirit is this equalizer. It, it makes these outsiders suddenly of, of equal value within this movement. How can we withhold the water to baptized? So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they invited him to stay for several days. I love these two passages because um, <laughs> it's, you don't get to make up the rules. The spirit's <laughs> gonna lead the way and do things. So what do we see in these stories? Well, we see the spirit working outside the church structures because there aren't any yet. <laughs> you know, there isn't a structured church. There's groups of believers who are trying to figure out how to how to be together. Um, and the spirit is working in people's yearnings and in their hearts and in their souls. And Cornelius, who's wanting to have a deeper relationship with this God he's come to know about. And this eunuch who's reading the reading Isaiah and saying, there's something here for me, but I don't get it. And so here's the, the meeting of what the spirit is doing inside people with what the spirit is doing outside people and stirring everything up. I think that's a great way to think about the spirit. So uh, stirring things up. The spirit surprised people with unprecedented action, not just ideas or thoughts or feelings, but action. It leads Philip and Peter into these unknown and unexpected situations. Um, neither of them knew what was going to happen. I mean, Philip coming up to the chariot, um, Peter going to a centurion's house. It could have turned out badly <laughs> in, in either situation. And, these un, and so then these unplanned things happened that allowed others, the eunuch Cornelius's household, as well as them, as well as Philip and Peter to experience God's power in unexpected, un, unimaginable ways and to feel God's acceptance. Both stories happen before there's a structured church and it's outside of the rituals and beliefs of Judaism. Um, the spirit is creating something new in people, between people and with God um, and doesn't seem to care about the rules that had, had existed before. Both stories include spontaneous responses to the spirit by both the seeker and the sent. 
So what do we learn about the spirit? Well, it seems to enjoy working in unprescribed, unstructured, unformulated, unformulated spaces. And it likes to work deep inside of us where we don't even notice until we notice. The spirit excels in moving outside the formulas and expectations of society, churches, or individuals to create something new. And here, you know, we think about the eunuch who would have been summarily um, uninvited to, to be fully Jewish. Um, and the spirit doesn't care about that. Um, it, it's doing what it will do. The spirit wants to stretch both the scent and the seeker to experience Christ's living presence in life-giving, and I think especially life-changing ways. And the spirit meets us where we are, not where others say we should be. <laughs> and its goal is to connect us with God's love and acceptance precisely where we are, not, not once we arrive, not once we've earned it, not once we've proved ourselves or got enough faith, right where we are. So questions this passage can ask us, and there are so many, so I've got just an assortment, but I do uh, want us to spend a minute on the last one, So, I, but I'll go through some of the others. So a first question is, where do I notice Christ's spirit wanting to work in unpredictable ways? And this might be where we work. It might be in our homes. It might be within our own minds, our hearts. It might be a church. Um, where are we noticing Christ's spirit um, nudging us towards the unpredictable? Which I know is a dangerous thing, but it is how the spirit works. Another question, where might the spirit ask me? Oops, where might the spirit ask me to relinquish my desire for people to behave within the rules, the predictable patterns or my comfort zone? And I probably, if we're honest, most of us really kind of want the structures to be pretty closed and comfortable. So listening to the spirit, where it's saying, oh, give me some room. Let, don't, don't let all those rules determine who you are or what you can do or how you will judge others. So that's the last one because I got two others in here first. What does it mean? And I think this is a fun one for a conversation, a discussion, is what does it mean that the spirit doesn't care about ethnic, sexual, or national identity, or a whole bunch of other kinds of identity, or whether a person has met some standard of imposed righteousness before embracing them? And in these two stories, it's fully embracing them. Um, so what does it say about the spirit that those things don't matter to it? And then this is a, one of those questions that's a, a self question. How can, I how can I discern between the strings of the spirit and my own desire for change or novelty? And that's just a place that we get to be honest and uh, check our own uh, rebellion sometimes and, and learn some things about ourselves. And then the last question, and I invite you to take a minute now and maybe in the next few days as well. And um, 
if you can remember, ask yourself, how is the spirit inviting me to be either the seeker or the scent today? We may have our identity as one or the other, but maybe we go back and forth between the two all the time. How is the spirit inviting me to be either the seeker or the scent today? Thank you for that, Charmaine and uh, Tony. The last question reminded me of a, a comment. I think it was Craig Van Gelder who wrote a lot of books about um, mission in the church and said that uh, God is ascending God. Yeah. God sent Jesus, Jesus sends the spirit and the spirit sends the church. So as a person who spent most of uh, her life in the ministry of uh, invitation and being sent, that one has stayed with me, which might be why this appeals to me so much in the book of Acts here. Um, there are some, some themes that have stayed with me as I've listened uh, to the explanation and the exploration and engaged in the experience. And um, you named one early on, the, the theme of the struggle towards inclusivity um, in the early church that we still struggle with, of course, uh, today. And this, um, this tension between uh, a spirit that is described as a rushing wind and our desire for things to be fixed. <laughs> I see that in the early churches as well. And I love the definition of the actual Greek word for the last part, the last word of Acts, which is the un, un, unhindered, that idea of unhindered. And I think sometimes uh, what hinders the church is us. <laughs> so if we could get over ourselves, maybe, uh, maybe we'd be less hindered there. Is there uh, any last comment or any last uh, thought that you wanted to bring up about the book of Acts before we, before we close? Read the book and take your, <laughs> <laughs> take your time with it and let it see where it goes. It takes, I would say probably of all of the books of the New Testament, the book of Acts is the easiest one to do a small group Bible study on because it's so, it's so self self-explanatory there's not a lot of complicated concepts in it and so a a good uh, a good scholarly study bible it has some footnotes and a good introduction can give you pretty much what you need to do a, a small group study on it and then maybe beyond the study the, follow some of Charmaine's questions and also yeah. ask what how, how do I need to you know in community of Christ language let the spirit breathe in my own life right so I just say take a question to acts and that it's probably got three parts but a question which is pay attention to what acts is saying about jesus and about the spirit and about the church okay so some challenging words as we go forward and look at that acts so I uh, found a quote I wanted to close this episode with, and it's from um, a feminist theologian. Her name is Virginia Mullencott, and she's a prolific author. She was an English professor and LGBTQ plus advocate. And this is what um, she said. I think it fits our conversation about acts today. 
Because I am a Christian and because I think my own family of faith needs to learn inclusiveness, perhaps more than any other, I must now utilize specifically Christian terminology. And here it is. It is my conviction that a conscious cooperation infused with the Holy Spirit calls us toward an all-inclusive attitude, a theology of the wind, a relationship to God in the world that does not try to make things easy by ruling out whole areas of human experience and whole groups of human beings. This leads us not just to the wholeness of Christ's body, the church, but also to our own internal wholeness. So I think that's a good description of our conversation today. And so we thank Virginia Mullencott for that quote that was out of Imagining the Word, the second volume. And with that, uh, what's our next episode? Are we moving into Paul's letters? We are. Hold on to that, Karen. We're moving into Paul. <laughs> and uh, I think, did we decide which book we move into next? Uh, I think we're going to do 1 Corinthians, which is, which as full, 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 1 Corinthians is going to be kind of like uh, a the Hellenistic world giving us a full frontal. Let's put it that way. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, is this, is this the one with the temples, with the naughty things going on? Is that Christians? Yes, right, right. We're, we're going we're gonna to step into the most fun city in the Greco-Roman world. <laughs> and one of the most dysfunctional churches you've ever been to. So this is the what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth this is episode. That Exactly. Excellent. Okay. Well, maybe, maybe I can more fully tolerate Paul if we're going to at least have some fun with the conversation. <laughs> so with that in mind, thank you again for being our guides through the New Testament, Tony Charmaine. And I'm Karen Peter. This is Project Zion Podcast, uh, part of New Brew, our series on the New Testament. And thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening to Project Zion Podcast. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming service you use. And while you are there, give us a five-star rating. Project Zion Podcast is sponsored by Latter-day Seeker Ministries of Community of Christ. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Latter-day Seeker Ministries or Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines. 